0: Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, we've got Ben Habib, the former Brexit Party MEP and CEO of First Property Group. Alan Miller, co-founder of the campaign group Together Declaration and the environmental policy re- researcher Laurie Leibon. It's men's night.
1: Can we Friday night.
0: Are we allowed to say men these days? Everyone starts crying <laughs> if we say women, but no-one says men. Can we say it? Yes, we can. It's men's night. There you go. It not sound too excited, you three. <laughs> well, kick them out in a minute and get yeah. ladies' night going on. That will be a bit thinking... more raucous, weren't it? You were thinking what?
2: Well, back? middle-aged men, at that... <laughs>
0: You're not all middle-aged, are you? Look at, look at oh, Laurie.
2: Laurie's, Laurie's young. Laurie's sitting there young. saying, I'm not middle-aged, I'm Not that yeah.
0: <laughs> They're all really excited to be here, honestly, really, despite what their face just showed when I introduced them all. The more enthusiasm you three is needed. <laughs> right, it's not just about us uh, here, it's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle michellejubes or at GB News. Don't forget, if you have not already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can download our app, uh, take us with you on the radio, DAB+, Plus. we're everywhere. So wherever you are joining us tonight, you are very, very welcome. Now, can you imagine being Boris Johnson uh, these last kind of 24, 48 hours? Honestly, you just must sit there and just want to almost headbutt the wall. Obviously, that is a figure of speech. I don't suggest people at home uh, go on to do that. But you must just want to do that, mustn't you? Because you seem to just kind of ricochet from uh, disaster to allegation to this, to that, to the other... And today was no different because there's been another uh, MP, Chris Pincher. I mean, when you think about the context of the allegations, you can't really make that name up, could you? But apparently he's been suspended because apparently he's groped two men. Uh, The party said he's had the whip removed after he was reported to the Parliament's watchdog, behaviour watchdog. Uh, The former Deputy Chief Whip, uh, who quit his government post this morning, said in a resignation letter he drank far too much and embarrassed himself and other people. Hmm. Ben Habib, I'll start with you on this one. What's going on? with the? I mean, the Tories, they are kind of, I would almost call it a bit self-harming at the moment. You'd think that they tried try to be on their best behaviour.
2: You would have thought so. But, you know, you, we've seen this before, haven't we, when a party's been in office for a long time and standards just begin to deteriorate. And I think they take their position pretty much for granted. So we've had a spate of these allegations, a spate of resignations. And of course, including famously the prime minister breaking his own lockdown rules. And, Mm. you know, some would say that, you know, a fish rots from its head. And if the prime minister is unable to adhere to the very laws that he introduced himself, which were so damaging to the country, how can you expect other MPs to uphold standards? And, you know, what's slightly surprising to me is I was speaking to Alan before we came on. We don't actually know what Pincher did, whether it was as simple as pinching or whether it was slightly more serious than that. But assuming it was serious enough for him... To have the whip removed.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I see what's going on here, everyone. I it's see it. getting more exciting it. now. Yes, yeah. I see it. The energy levels are <laughs> rising in the studio, I can tell you that.
2: But uh, assuming it was serious enough to have the whip removed, really he should resign, shouldn't he as an MP? It, it, it's kind of binary in my mind. Either you're guilty of doing something quite serious, in which case you should just go from public office, or you're not, in which case you should continue. I, I, I can't see how this kind of intermediate position of having the whip removed and, um, a, a, and losing your office uh, solves the problem. No, I think, I think that the, the Conservative Party is too complacent, too stuck in its ways. It's had 12 years in office and it needs a good kick in the backside.
0: But Alan, I mean, Boris Johnson can't be uh, responsible, surely can he, for a member of his team going out, getting a bit drunk and behaving badly?
3: Well, under English law, people are responsible for their individual behaviour and... Uh, I don't know what's happened. I do know that we're faced with enormously challenging issues right now from uh, the cost of living, cost of lockdown crisis, inflation, cost of food. And you'd think that the key discussion would be about how to resolve those issues, around productivity, uh, around how to address this in a really significant way. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think there's an issue uh, across the board with with discipline. I think there's a question of behaviour. I think that I wouldn't, I don't necessarily agree with Ben. I think the big problem with what happened wasn't that Boris and the people had some people around with some cake and wine that they were working with. It's all a bit weird. I think the big problem was that they imposed all these rules that were not necessary. Mm. And now we're having discussions about having them again. Yeah, I am. I'm slightly nervous sometimes about these discussions when we don't know what was involved. Mm. And there's a whole kind of Gravely chain of accusations. But certainly they've had a number of things happen that have been very, very serious up until now. Do you
0: think we have this kind of culture in this uh, country, I'm not talking about this guy per se, I'm talking generally, um, where it's at the point of allegation, it's immediate, right, get him out, he's got to go, he's got to go, he's got to go. And it's almost kind of guilty until uh, proven innocent. And our law is obviously the opposite to that. It's well, I think that... First.
3: Exactly. We, have to, we should uphold the idea that you're innocent until... Proven guilty uh, and... But he did admit it. Right. He did, he yeah. It. yeah, he did. No, yeah. exactly. But what yeah. is it? That so groping, I mean, that commit. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're going get, to get into it a bit more about to what extent these issues are pervasive in culture and everything. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that constitute discussions around physical abuse and harassment that get converged. Sometimes I think some of those things, I don't know what happened here, but he's admitted it and he's resigned, which I think is the right thing to do, right? Yeah. But but then there are other things that often get converged. The things like if you say something to someone, we're like, that's a nice top. People have been sacked for in, in NGOs and things like that, which I think diminishes what physical assault can be as well. So I think that there's a range of these things and it's one of those things that people can also then say, look, it's the rots everywhere. Look how terrible they are in general about all these things. And I think that... You know, it's a problem when people... But, you know, we've got rules and there are laws, and so... So we'll behave see.
0: yourselves. But I tell you, um, Laurie, I would love to uh, not be talking about this stuff. I just find, you know, I, I just find some of this... I'm not trying to undermine uh, sexual abuse or anything like that, but obviously we don't know what's going on. But I do just find talking about this stuff a bit ridiculous, uh, to Alan's point. There's lots going on in um, politics at the moment, lots of people struggling. That's the kind of stuff we should be focusing on. But for some reason this uh, party seems to be the party that keeps on giving with this stuff and it's silly mm. it's ridiculous mm.
1: well i think it goes to ben's point about how culture kind of comes from the top anyone who's worked in organization or business is aware of how the leader of that organizational business the way they behave uh can you know give people a free pass or embolden them to behave in in certain ways right boris johnson has responsibility as the leader of his party as well as the prime minister's country, to set an example. At the end of the day, he had a responsibility with this guy. I think because there had been allegations before that were known about that were then used to warn Boris Johnson about putting him in a certain position in government. But he still did it because that guy was an ally to him, right? And time. Yeah, and time he, he resigned
0: again, as a junior whip in twenty seventeen. Yeah. He? And time
1: and time again, we're in a situation here where Conservative Party MPs are behaving in this way you know and I agree with you we shouldn't be in this situation where we have to get these stories all the time using up energy in news space we should be talking about the issues that matter as well as we're going I'm going to
0: take that as my cue we're going to talk about the issues that do indeed matter. Um, Sean has said Michelle, by the looks of things why don't we just do this? why don't we uh, scrutinize in a more stringent manner prior to any kind of uh, elections or anything the people that are standing for election. Um, But I don't really, I mean, if you've not, if you've got a bit drunk and done something that you shouldn't really have done, that's not going to be on a criminal record or anything like that, is it? So I'm not really sure... Uh, what that would fix. But you tell me, uh, how much does all of this kind of bother you, by the way? Does it turn you off from the Tories? Or do you just think, oh, pack it in, move on? You tell me, GBviews at GBnews.uk. But as uh, Alan and people have rightly pointed out, there are other things going on that we should be focusing on. So let's move on. Because Boris Johnson has refused to definitively rule out more COVID restrictions, the Prime Minister said that there were no plans to reintroduce curbs at the moment, uh, but some feel that that might leave the door open to future measures over in Scotland. uh, The MSPs there have voted to pass legislation which would allow some emergency COVID uh, powers to basically become permanent. Uh, That's despite the opposition parties labelling it a power grab. I'll start with you on this one on Alan Miller. Do you worry? Are we kind of tiptoeing back into the land of the ridiculous when it comes to the restrictions or not?
3: Oh, I think it's an absolute aberration that they should extend measures. I think Jackie Bailey's right on this, Uh, Labour in in opposition saying it's like a Frankenstein bill and it's a power grab. I I just wonder why actually Labour were so happy to do so much in Wales under Mark Drakeford. We've seen measures that have been very damaging that have come out from reports now. We've seen the John Hopkins University uh, discussion on lockdowns and restrictions, what they said, MPIs. We've seen that generally those impositions have been very damaging in terms. Terms of education, health, business—we're now in a cost of lockdown, cost of living crisis—and politicians, uh, MSPs' decision is to extend the potential for state overreach and to imp- impose things. This should not be part of a policy repertoire. It's an abs- We've got so many measures to deal with the problems that have been caused as a consequence of these things. And well, do you
0: I- think that's even been accepted? Do you think people have fully accepted? that some of the problems that we've got in society now are a direct correlation, or, well, that have been caused, because of the lockdown restrictions?
3: Yeah, I don't think that they have. I think there are... Look, it's certainly the case that since the 70s, through the decades, our wage growth has been sluggish from 3% to one5 and then for several decades low. We've had issues of, with productivity. No-one's really wanted to discuss it. However, there's an attempt to present this all as being about Ukraine and shutting the economy down for two years, pretty much. Mm. What that has had consequences in terms of health, society um, and our economy particularly when we haven't been particularly dynamic and robust before that, all the opportunities that were presented a couple of years ago before this have been uh, diminished. And we've really got to get to grips with this. Uh, one thing, though, um, I mean, Boris did say that at the moment, you know, sometimes it can be presented that he's got a plan that he wants to implement things. It's slightly different to the it's different to the MSPs extending this. Um, but it should never be part of a policy repertoire. The public needs to make its voice heard with their MPs. Uh, and nationally, with government, it's very important. That's why our together, Declaration, together. We've always made the point that it's going to be the public asserting themselves and making sure their voice is heard, because that's the way that MPs and that's the way that people that run the country get a, a sense of things. And I think it's really important that we do that and don't allow a situation where we have, when in doubt, regulate and impose, um, because we're going to see a really tough autumn and winter. I'm very concerned about what's happening. Unless we get out with a, with a can-do approach that isn't about imposing and restricting, but it's about opening up society, developing a dynamic situation with our economy, we're going to be in severe trouble.
0: Alan Miller for Prime Minister, that's what I say. Laurie, do you agree with him or not?
1: Um, I think that there isn't much of a risk right now Boris Johnson imposing lockdowns. I think it is the sort of nuclear option, and I think we need to spend more time, and hopefully this will be done through the official inquiry of going back to the beginning of the pandemic and um, identifying the reasons why lockdowns had to become, or we pushed in a situation where we were becoming the only th- option that was on the table. Proper track and trace was needed, um, more preemptive action that, that jumped on the virus earlier before it got into the country and became endemic. There was a lot of complacency at the beginning of the pandemic that's its very easy to kind of forget about because of all the years of stuff that's been layered on top. And there have been all these huge costs to lockdowns I think that in some ways the at least the first lockdowns and maybe the one at the winter at the end of 2020 were kind of they were, we should almost see them as a as an unfortunate last resort of a failure of a government that was highly complacent in the face of a novel public health threat and so I now we need to make sure that we're we've got that those type of, of early warning systems that mean that we can jump on say an extreme variant or another pandemic if it's coming down the line so proper track and tracing, and a, and a particularly important one is to make sure that we are doing our bit, which I don't think we are, to ensure that people all around the world are vaccinated to reduce the potential for other variants. But vaccinated
0: emerge. how many times, by the way? What do we do, just keep going or go. So and Improve their going. public health systems
1: as well then. Like, the, there's huge amounts of stuff that, that wealthier nations can do to improve public health systems in countries where some of these pandemics could emerge from.
0: Um, I know you want to come back in, but just let me bring Ben in. Um, Obviously, we're in a situation where people are referencing cases rising, etc. But for me personally, I don't really get why people are still wandering around testing themselves for COVID. No, so, we shouldn't. Someone we in my team the other day, and I'm sorry, because I know you'll be sitting watching this, um, yeah. but he told me with a straight face that he had food poisoning, so I'll leave it to the viewer's discretion to know what the symptoms of that might be,
2: yeah.
0: uh, and decided to do a COVID test.
2: And was it positive?
0: I, I, well, I, I said, it too, but why?
3: Yeah.
0: Why, why, would, why is people's kind of um, go-to uh, no. response now? Oh, I've got the runs. Let me do a Covid test. <laughs> I don't get it. I'm sorry, by the way, because I know you are uh, back behind me there. You probably put your head in your hands. Uh, sorry about mentioning that. I didn't, I didn't give you a name, but I don't get this kind of mindset to still keep testing all the time. Well,
2: we're a very subdued population. You know, we... Tony Blair introduced the nanny state, and... Boris Johnson has taken it to full wet nurse level. And lockdowns is the ultimate in state intervention. It's the worst um, government policy I have seen in my life. And Alan is absolutely right. People need to understand the cause and effect of why we're in the problems we're in now. And let me just recapitulate what those problems are. National debt up by 33%. uh, Inflation now at 10%. um, A record number of people falling out of the workforce. Over 5 million people uh, claiming benefits. A country whose GDP hasn't grown by more than 10% in 12 years, most of the hit taken since we started with the COVID lockdowns. These lockdowns have been a disaster. And it's not just economic. You look at the NHS, waiting lists before lockdowns were 4 million. Waiting lists now is 7 million forecast to go to 8 million. Lockdowns create a national health disaster. Boris Johnson, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon's a complete lunatic, but Boris Johnson, I think, does have a brain, and he must declare against lockdowns as ever being used as a policy tool ever again. We cannot afford it from a health, economic, mental health
3: issue. We must never do them again. Uh, just to say as well, we had a pandemic preparedness strategy up until this unprecedented situation where uh, this imposition that had never been done before anywhere was imposed. And there were lots of measures that were very well established in terms of how to deal with a pandemic. And they were jettisoned and thrown away in the U-turn that was taken up when they, the government, this allegedly really strong, robust authority, government, actually collapsed under pressure. Uh, for saying you're going to like just be responsible for this, just letting rip. If you look at what's happened in other contexts of this, we can now make comparisons. If you look at places like Sweden, which they didn't just do nothing, but they made very particular sets of Responses to what would happen in schools, for instance, and only the child that tested positive would actually go home, not all of the kids. Right? Very, very important. And in fact, um, um, Molly Kingsley and Liz Cole have got a book out that's that's chronicling all of that. Um, If you look at um, what they did with, you know, groups could meet of up to 50. If you look at Florida, there were different responses and what would happen. Now, I'm very concerned that you've got a situation where the both of the European Union has got a deal for a COVID pass for 400 million citizens with T-Systems and the World Health Organization is trying to get 194 countries to have it. A pass which shows your intimate details, which doesn't stop you catching something or spreading it, but somehow we're all meant to have this thing. And all these interventions that something must be seen to be done, which end up uh, corroding and taking away some of our core fundamental rights and freedoms and actually don't actually do any benefit. I think we have to rigorously assess them and oppose them. I think scrutiny, the public having its voice there, we've been treated with contempt and disdain. And I would just say that, no, as we talk about doing other measures, that, that we had a very great response you know, in place before. And I think the COVID inquiry, which isn't going to come out until 2026 or maybe 27, yeah. um, and now it's being delayed with millions spent on them, um, is just insufficient. We need to have that public debate, air out these things, assess it, and also say that some things you have to say never again.
0: Mm, I but, agree with that. And why, Very I think briefly, Lawrence. Why,
1: why, why we do that, worry. we have to remember that, in some ways, lockdown was, a, was an inevitable failure of the ability to be resilient to pandemics coming along. Like, you talk about tracking people at the beginning of the pandemic. Local authorities have been tracking disease at a local level since the Victorian times, but the government did not equip them with the resources and the capabilities to do that at the beginning of the pandemic. The NHS had a shortfall of something like 40,000 nurses, and you need nurses in the context of COVID pandemic. We should see lockdowns almost as the direct consequence of a catastrophic failure for the government to invest in the things that keep us safe as a country over the course of the 10 years leading up to the pandemic.
0: Well, there you go. That's what the panel thinks. Let me know what you think, Mark. Says I think, Michelle, your panel would be surprised by how many people would love another lockdown. The work ethic in this country is no longer what it used to be. Many would relish sitting at home doing nothing. That says Mark. What says you? GB Views at GBNews.uk. <laughs> Hello there, I'm Michelle Dubry. Welcome back to jubes & Co. Keeping me company is my panel, Ben Habib, who's the former Brexit Party MEP and the CEO of First Property Group, Alan Miller, who's the co-founder of the campaign group Together Declaration, and the environmental policy researcher, Laurie Leibon. Uh, lots of you guys getting in contact. On that first topic, by the way, Andy says, Michelle, call me dim, but... What does having the whip removed actually mean? He says, I can't be the only one, surely, that doesn't know what it means. Good question, Andy. That is, of course, we're talking about the uh, Tory MP, uh, Chris Pincher that's uh, lost the whip. It gets a little bit complicated with this guy because he was one of the whips. So in the party, the whips uh, are responsible for whipping, is the term. It's not obviously not whipping. But trying to get the MPs to vote the way that the party wants them to. Now, separately to that... Uh, Any MP can have the whip removed, and what that basically means is they're essentially kicked out of the party. So you've still got your job as an MP. You're still uh, the MP for the area, um, but you're not aligned to the parties. In this case, you're not aligned to the Tories. Uh, Obviously, there's an investigation going on, so we'll see what the outcome of that uh, means. He might be allowed back in, he might not, but that's what it means. Have I answered your question, Andy? Tell me, let me know. Uh, right, uh, speaking of Tory MPs, another one, different one, has criticised extreme sex education materials in schools. Uh, Miriam Cates, who's a former biology teacher, brought up the compulsory relationship and sex education curriculum at a Westminster Hall Debate. Let's have a listen to her concerns.
4: An All About Me programme developed by Warwickshire County Council's Respect Yourself team introduces six and seven-year-olds to rules about touching yourself. I recently spoke to a mother in my constituency who was distraught that her six-year-old had been taught about masturbation in school.
0: Yeah, I mean, you might just want to be aware if you've got children around, but I do have to be clear, the stuff that she's talking about is being taught to children. Uh, Let's have a listen to another one. I spoke to a mother who told me
4: how her 11-year-old son had been shown a PowerPoint in a lesson on sexuality, setting out characteristics and behaviours and asking children to read through the lists and decide if they were straight, gay or bisexual. prepubescent 11 11-year-olds... Are... I mean, come on. Uh, one more for the road, why not? <laughs> the Proud Trust has produced a dice game encouraging children to discuss explicit sexual acts based on the role of a dice. The six sides of the dice name different body parts, such as anus, vulva, penis, mouth and objects. Two dice are thrown, and children must name a pleasurable sexual act that can take place between those two body parts.
0: I mean, to me, that sounds like a Anne Summers party or something like that. It does not sound like a classroom uh, learning environment. I am a mom to a little boy um, and I absolutely would not be comfortable with him hearing some of those things in an environment where predominantly he's there to learn how to read and write and do maths and whatever else it is these days. Uh, learn all about his white privilege prob- probably. Um, but anyway, I wouldn't be comfortable with my uh, child hearing some of this and I think it's all going a bit far. Ben Habib, where do you stand on it?
2: Well, I think it's gone far too far. I mean, I, some of the stuff that Miriam was quoting is conversation in words that you wouldn't dare to have with adults. I know you excused yourself, um, you know, during, uh, during the introduction over the word masturbation. And oh, I, feel, I, feel, I, yes. feel, I feel pretty <laughs> awful using that word on television. A, yeah. And I'm a 57-year-old man. So why are they teaching children at the age of six or seven about masturbation? It's completely wrong. The only biological... You do
0: say it with quite a posh accent, though. I've got to say it makes me laugh, but uh, I digress. Well, I mean...
2: You know, I remember doing biology O-level before GCSEs existed and finding the whole thing about a uterus and fallopian tubes all very, you know, titillating and adventurous. And all we learnt then was this is how you conceive, and that was sort of mind-blowing enough. And actually, I think children should not be learning. It's not even learning. They're being hijacked, aren't they? This is not proper education. They are having their ideologies hijacked at a young age. And this is where I think that minority interest debate has gone so far over to the extreme that we're allowing our educational establishments to be infected by this peculiar way of thinking. And I think it needs to be stamped on you know, incredibly hard.
0: Yeah, by the way, regular viewers to this programme might recall a few weeks ago when I read out a passage, do you remember, uh, of a book that was aimed at children as young as, I think it was seven, and I read out a passage. I don't think I've ever been so embarrassed in all my life knowing that my mum was watching that, and it was aimed at seven-year-olds. Laurie, where do you stand on it all?
1: Um, I mean, there's clearly, we clearly have uh, still some problems in this country with attitude towards sexual relations, uh, maybe even within the Conservative Party itself, there's a need for a bit of sex education. Um, I think that there, there, there obviously is a, a sort of a cultural and social element to sex beyond just the biological act, right? Uh, I have a lot of people very close to me who are GPs working in their health service and they experience lots of problems with young people. I'm not saying necessarily kids who are sort of six and seven, who have problems related to masturbation, related to abusive relationships with rough sex and other things that, that are damaging for them, but they're not quite in a position where they can feel the power to say no to those kind of activities and to pornography as well, particularly among boys who can be addicted to pornography. And I think it is right that we do have education about those things. Now, I'm not saying I know because I'm not a teacher, where the kind of appropriate point in at the school, where, where you are in school, what age you are in school is the right time for that. But I think it is still very important that we do have some element of the sort of social side to sex education at some point in school. So we don't create a situation where we, well, we minimize the situation where people can have, get themselves into dangerous sexual situations, basically. So I think there is an element here that is also really important alongside some of the kind of eye-catching extreme examples. But why should that's not be so, taught that's, about anything deviant,
3: Laurie? I mean, no, no, that's, not hap- just, that's not let, what's,
0: yeah, Go on, yeah,
3: That's not what's actually happening. Um, I think one of the things is that I think about from when I... I'm 52, so when I was growing up, and there were still some certainties in society and there was a sense in which education, what it was for, there was a relationship, you know, to religion, and there was also a sense that your parents would uh, make some decisions about what they would do with you and teach you about. And there was sex education began to come in as, as I was getting towards my O levels and everything. And there, there was elements of that. We've got the culture wars now, which is what's happened in America, come to Britain. And we have a situation where they're rather than winning hearts and minds in the public and making the case in the demos with adults, some people are trying to, from various views, they're trying to appropriate it with young children. Now, the thing is, we have a big enough issue with education that maths, English, writing—we don't have good enough standards for the. You know, we're going backwards in something. So we've now got higher cases of um, illiteracy. We've got a situation where even some kids get to university, young adults—they they can't write um, essays. Mm. And I, we so we have a real problem with education in terms of what it was there historically for, and the question of I think there is a question about at what age people are introduced to what things. But it's not just this kind of. General thing. We've seen all sorts of things where it's very specific that you have to go along with certain ideas and certain views, right? And that's an imposition. Now if, I think that, you know, we've got a situation where you should you should be able to ring fence that and separate it and say at a certain ages, you know, young young children in particular, that shouldn't be what's going on. And we've got a responsibility and a duty to educate children and young people so that then they can make their own decisions about what they think is appropriate and right in their lives.
0: Yeah, and I'll just read out another couple of bits, uh, if you don't mind, uh, from this is what the MPs kind of, this is a direct quote. She's saying another significant concern she has is the use of RSE to push extreme gender ideology. Gender ideology is a belief system that claims that we all have an innate gender that may or may not align with our biological sex. Gender uh, ideology claims that rather than sex being determined at conception and observed at birth, it is actually assigned at birth and that doctors... Sometimes get it wrong, she worries. But this has been pushed onto children. Just to give you some context around that, there's been more than a 4,000% rise in the referrals of girls to gender uh, services over the last decade. And a recent poll of teachers suggests that at least 79% of schools have trans identifying children. I've got to be honest, that kind of makes uh, me go a little bit goose pimply. Because of course there will be that, some a, that's children.
2: A, that's a mental health issue. That is a mental health issue. They are they are hijacking the mental health of these children. These are concepts and uh, and behavioural but um, behaviours which are alien to children. They don't. Children won't understand this. I mean, it, it's bizarre for me at my age to get my head around some of you know what people do and so on. I I, I think it's completely <laughs> wrong um, to be forcing it down children and. I think Alan touched on, on a point which I just want to develop. You know, he said we were sort of brought up with religion. Well, there's a whole moral aspect to education. And there's a much easier way to bring up balanced human beings than shoving gender ideology down their throats. And that is to treat them, to teach them the importance of basic morality. Tell the truth. Teach, treat each other with respect. Um, don't act inappropriately. Keep thoughts to yourself if they're, you know, not, not, not capable, not, not, not worthy of being, uh, uh, you know, um, articulated in public. The basic principles, which I was brought up with, I imagine Alan was, and I'm sure Laurie was too. And, you know, you don't make up for um, an inability to judge right from wrong by discussing these kinds of... Well, I find it offensive. I find them absolutely well, offensive. Paul,
0: one of the viewers, Paul, makes a good sense, uh, a good point. He says, Michelle, if an r- adult randomly engaged a child in a conversation along the lines of some of the topics that the um, MPs referring to, et cetera, he would be basically uh, on the hook potentially prosecu- prosecuted for grooming. And I do think there's something in that. If a grown man, for example, was sitting there talking to, I don't know, a six-year-old about masturbation, and I am, I have to apologise, because I found this a little bit uncomfortable, I'm not going to lie. I know many of you will be eating your tea and you might even have children around. But I think that this subject is so important. I don't feel like it's something we can just kind of gloss under the carpet just because it is potentially a bit embarrassing. But I think in any other environment, if an adult was having these kind of conversations with children at six, you'd be getting yourself into trouble for this. And one of the problems, um, Alan, is it's getting farmed out a lot of this stuff to various different groups. And I would urge all parents, ask your schools what is the curriculum in this subject that you are teaching these pupils? What age is seeing what? What is the content? What is the materials? And get them to show you and then make your own decisions as parents because what we think might, you might disagree with, um, it's up to you, it's your child. But for me, I'm deeply uncomfortable with some of this.
3: When a society uh, does not know what it stands for anymore and cannot motivate a sense of uh, a universal set of values and principles and it kind of collapses, you then have a situation that we have but many ordinary people in britain up and down the country know very clearly still about what they think about morality and what's appropriate or not. And and really it's in the arena of families that many of these things, I mean, I happen to have been adopted and at a very young age, my parents made a decision which I think was right to get me a book about where the babies come from. That was a very personal decision to think about how to inculcate a specific set of things. So I kind of learned those things and they gave me the moral underpinnings. But education should be about educating uh, uh, the next generation um, to develop their brains and their minds and to become part of society so that when they become adults, this whole thing about finding your sexuality is something that you do later on in life when you become an adult right That was the whole transformation of what becoming an adult has been. Now it seems that it has to be hijacked by one view or another and inserted there and I think that it's problematic deeply it's deeply problematic and you know we, we, it, I just think that it says a lot about the fact that. Almost now you can be accused of things. One of the things, are, you know, this, the idea of the silent majority, all these things are happening whilst many ordinary people are deeply, deeply uncomfortable with it, right? And it's kind of like these things are in discussions in these think tanks and the civil service. They make these proclamations and institutions and somehow everyone has to go along with it. But, you know, with this, I think people have had a visceral understandable reaction to it.
0: But this is why I'm choosing to talk about this uh, subject, because Lynette says this is outrageous, but what can we do to stop it? Ron says, I would be outraged um, if I thought my grandchildren were being taught this type of education at school. I would urge, as I've just said already, if you're a parent, a grandparent, I don't know, an auntie, an uncle, whatever... Ask, make sure that you're, as a parent, asking the school what is your curriculum for your relationship and your sex education lessons. Let me see the materials, uh, the sources. Make sure you're familiarising yourself with what your child is being taught in schools. Um, As I said, I personally think that so much of this is very, very wrong. We can, of course, agree to disagree. So let me know your thoughts. GBviews at GBnews.uk is the email. (music) Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. My panel, a quick reminder, Ben Habib, the former Brexit Party MEP and the CEO of First Property Group, Alan Miller, the co-founder of Campaign Group Together Declaration and the environmental policy researcher, Laurie Leibon. I can tell you, we've just continued that conversation about that previous topic well into the break. Uh, Leslie, I've just, I've lost your email, but I think your name's Leslie. I hope I've got that right. You say that actually you asked uh, the school to show you uh, what content you were actually, your children were receiving, and they refused to show you the content. Uh, well, I can safely say if someone refused to tell me uh, what it is that they're teaching my child when it comes to this topic, I'd have them removed from that lesson. Uh, some, there's been a, a call in the House of Lords, actually, because what happens in some schools is a bit of a loophole uh, when it comes to external materials. And what they've been finding sometimes is that some schools will say that these third parties that have been brought in to create and distribute this content uh, can rely on kind of a privacy uh, element that they don't have to show it to a party, um, each to their own and all that, but I would be having none of that when it comes to my uh, child's education in this matter. I think it's such a crucial matter. Right, a jihadist alleged to have belonged to the Islamic State uh, execution squad, also known as the Beatles, could be back in the UK within weeks after the Turkish authorities uh, scheduled his deportation. Um, he's basically this fella, Amy Davis, has denied that he was part of the British terrorist group that tortured and beheaded the Western hostages in Syria. Davis was arrested in 2015 by Turkish security officials and sentenced to seven and a half years in prison for his membership with ISIS. Sounds a delight, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, do you think he should be allowed to return to the UK, Laurie?
1: So he's a British citizen, so he maintains the right to return to the UK, and that's a right that we all enjoy. I'm, it's good to hear, as we saw in the news report earlier, that when he returns to the UK, there could be some kind of prosecution, right? And that is absolutely appropriate. The, the blanket prince, you know, because if this guy is engaged in, in terrorist activities, we heard there on the segment that it's alleged, he needs to be taken to court, we need to find out, and then if he's, if he's engaged in those behaviours... In a British court, he was in Turkish court, in a British court, then he should be prosecuted and, and that should be that, right? Separate to his specific case, his specific case, the general principle of removing citizenship is something that, you know, we can hear these cases and be like, well, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But in reading about it, I think there are some complexities to it. And a, and a bit of me is, is slightly uncomfortable with it for two reasons, basically. One, I feel like you're displacing the problem. So, this guy, he, 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 I think originally his family came from another country, right? And if we say you're no longer British and you're going back to that country, what's he then going to do? And is he going to have a serious who, who problem has? with the UK? But,
0: Why would we care? Yeah, he gonna, and I'm absolutely trying to displace but, the problem. Thank you. Go, go somewhere else.
1: Is he going go to go? But is he then going to go to Syria, or is he going to go to another place where British armed forces are fighting? Why do not he go to, to
0: what I would imagine would it be his, his idea of heaven? Why don't you go live in a <laughs> deeply could, Islamic country under a, Sharia this, law? We live in a global. Go over there.
1: We, we it, you know, we're concerned about terrorism, and it's a global issue, right? And there's a potential here. I'm not talking about this particular guy, but a potential here for displacement of the problem. The second thing is that it is, it is, part of that is it palming it off onto, onto other countries. The only way we can deal with this type of threat is by ensuring that we cooperate internationally. And what I would like to see is a situation where returning British citizens who've engaged themselves in certain activities abroad are able to be put through a process where they're prosecuted in Britain. We don't have a situation where they come back and say they've got out of, Turkey in, got out of prison in Turkey. And they come back, and the British authorities allow them then to
3: be on the streets and under
1: monitoring or whatever, but they are prosecuted when they come back. You
3: Alan
0: know. Miller, where do you stand? Uh,
3: he's uh, made a decision. He's a traitor. He's an enemy combatant. He's gone to specifically overturn and overthrow everything that we believe in, um, and... <clears throat> uh, I, don't, I think it's a distinction that we make between someone who's a criminal and might have done quite heinous things, but within the context of being a citizen in this country, that you can then say crime and punishment and do it within the auspices of how that exists, and someone who's actively taken it upon themselves to jettison any notion of citizenship, to become an enemy of everything that we stand for and to become part of a death cult. Now... There is a question about if people have actually done something or not. That is a legitimate question, right? You can't just throw out accusations. Um, but in this context of these uh, these particular group with the Beatles and this character, I mean, they're quite heinous. I, there are concerns because if, for instance, there were people that went over to uh, defend the Kurds, for instance, right? ex-service people from Britain and, and they were also could be caught under the web of being called terrorists, right? But I think this is where judgment and has to come into the situation when you make the one, I'm always concerned with lots of laws and lots of rulemaking, mm. rather than interrogating the situation and using judgment and executing that and having the confidence of doing that. And I just think that um, I know that many in the human rights community say that once you do something like this, that just is it. But actually, I think it's right the point that was made a few years ago that if their are enemies on the field in the combat and they've chosen that position, then they're in war. And that's the position. Fennabe? Well, I, I
2: I think it's it's a it's a difficult conversation. And I, I, I agree with Laurie actually in many respects. You know, citizenship with the United Kingdom is a privilege and an obligation. And it's a privilege for the individual. The individual is obliged to the state, but the state is also obliged to the individual. When we give someone British citizenship, what we're doing is bestowing on them all the rights that go with uh, the protections of British law. And this guy may be a terrorist. He may be an enemy combatant. Um, He looks like he is. And I imagine he probably is. But you can't strip him unilaterally, without trial. Well, I don't think you can strip him of his British citizenship full stop. What you can do is bring him back to the UK, put him on trial, and then bang him away for the maximum period allowed uh, for the crimes that he's committed. And I also agree with Laurie that, you you know, you can't make this a problem. I think it was, he was from Gambia. You can't make it a Gambian problem. Yeah. Otherwise, we're exporting our issues to other countries in the same way that we eschew other countries exporting their problems to us.
0: Well, so, as, as I always say on this programme, it's a good job I'm not in charge of the country because I absolutely would make it Gambia's problem, quite frankly. Um, but why would you want to come back here anyway? If you're so in love with this whole idea of this um, Islamist society and Sharia law and all the rest of it, why would you even want to be here? Why, why wouldn't you just go live out your days uh, in your idea of heaven? Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you at home. Have yourself a fantastic weekend. And I'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jube's Incur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.